Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity, and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader and what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, the first person personally was my mom. Uh, she was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, she was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, we were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing, we were in regular housing, the people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she would always manage to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right? To try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? Mm. I would describe it, hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, uh, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated. Uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 
12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision? What are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit? And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we made our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, and that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, and it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think a successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly Black women and certainly gay black women, uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka. So I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a signal effect of what other people are going to expect as black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind. Um, than I did before. And I, and I do that, I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the, expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and oftentimes based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind, to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with a Washington Post um, uh, interview, and it, it, you were amazing. And it, it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And 
you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy to do. No, no, not at all. You've had a fascinating career as a business leader, an entrepreneur, and as you mentioned, an appointee for two presidential administrations. Can you tell us a little bit more about your background and what led you to where you are today? You know, I think this, the concept, as I, as I talked about my relationship with my mom, is uh, I'm very clear that service is important. Um, I would watch my mom do things. I'm like, why are we doing this again? This is the weekend. Are you getting paid for this? And the answers were like, no, I'm not getting paid. And yes, it's the weekend, but you got stuff to do. And so I, I do think that at a very early age, this concept of service was important. And, and I joke with my kids because like, there were no required community service hours when I was in school and now they're required. But I have always recognized that I have a role and responsibility to give back. Certainly going to Georgetown University, a Jesuit institution with the motto and belief around cure personalis care for others, that was core to who we were. Uh, and it wasn't say it was required, but it was strongly encouraged that you find a way to anchor yourself in the community and really recognize your privilege and give back. And so I think this concept of giving back and being of service has been extremely important to me. Uh, so much so that my kids regularly remind me that I could be making a lot more money uh, if I was less focus on service and helping people. Um, and I think that it's, that's, a, that's a big deal because I think, um, you know, I work in the world of venture capital and, and business creation. And oftentimes we look up to Fortune 100 or Fortune 500 companies and you hear about the bonuses and the perks. And I often wonder, are they happy? Uh, and are they really believing in what they're doing? Um, and I think that there's, you know, these just capital movements and others where you're finding a lot of these very high paid CEOs and entrepreneurs saying, I'm not doing the right thing. Like this just cannot possibly be for the money. And the irony is, as a finance professor at Georgetown, we, we talk a lot about the distinction between stakeholder and shareholder. And, and I think for me, I am hypersensitive to the fact that my job is to really focus on the stakeholder, not just those who are investing dollars and times, but for the broader community or members or organization, wherever I sit that I serve, I need to be much more mindful of the greater good for the stakeholders because the shareholders are going to ebb and flow, but who I'm supposed to be working for and on behalf of, that is not going to change. And that's extremely important. And I would say, particularly in the context of working in presidential administrations, the one lesson that I learned very early on that continues with me is that leadership is not defined by position, but it's defined by control. And, and one of the lessons my mom taught me is always make sure you know the people who actually control the building, which oftentimes when I was school was the janitors. When I was at Georgetown, it was the cafeteria people. And I was laughed at when I joined my first administration. And certainly in my second, they were like, you just talk to everybody. And I said, you know what? That's saying, like, be careful on the way up because when you fall back down, you just never know who's going to meet you. I truly believe that. And so I, I think for me, this concept of how I've evolved and what is important is to stay humble, to recognize that whatever I do is bigger than myself that I am constantly in service. I was put on this earth to be of service and that everyone is equal. Everyone has an equal role in my success and I have an equal role in making sure that everybody is successful, not just the people above me or at my peer level. Most of the listeners to this podcast are federal employees. You were serving in the federal um, government. Uh, you're appointed. Uh, and, but you're interfacing 
every day with career civil servants. <clears throat> what you talked about with your outlook on work, giving back, I think you said, and service to others. And then you wrap that up with believing in what you're doing. Uh, one of the things that's, I think, a, a really noble uh, career path is for the federal servants who live that every single day. It's not a tagline with them. They, they are in it for service because many of them could go to the private sector and, and do different things and perhaps earn more money as well. Um, you mentioned Georgetown uh, and you teach impact investing, social entrepreneurship and innovation at Georgetown. Um, what, are the, some of the, what are some of the leadership lessons that you hope your students take away from your classes? Yeah, we have a we have a whole module uh, on leadership, and and we talk about what is authentic leadership, what is servant leadership, all these titles that they hear about. Uh, you know, I teach MBA students, so I'm supposed to be preparing them to be the global leaders, uh, and so we spend a lot of time really just defining what does it mean to be leader, because oftentimes it's not having and amassing power; it is distributing power. We also spend a lot of time talking about empathy. Uh, you know, in a world that is dramatically changing, particularly in a global universe where we have certainly significant demographic changes happening here in the United States and certainly a very diverse global community, I spend a lot of time with them saying it is important that you do not show up only with your own views, values, and biases, that you understand that understanding other people's positions, not being sympathetic, but empathetic is extremely important. Uh, and then the other piece that we talk a lot about, we, I have them do a lot of self-reflection, which they go, I'm an MBA student. I'm like, yeah, and you probably never journaled around, you know, what you're actually learning and how you're feeling. I spend a lot of time explaining to them how they learn and how their values are formed. And that's important because I think we all come into this world and we evolve through our familiar your relationships and we say these are our values but the reality is they need to change because the world is constantly changing and so we spend a lot of time reviewing where are their values still aligned with what the world needs and where has there been conflict based on history and familiar relationships as the world has dramatically changed and I think one of the, the biggest takeaways as I ask them to send in their kind of final reflections is that leadership is ever evolving it is not a static thing. That if you are a leader, there needs to be a constant state of self-reflection, a constant assessment of how you are serving others, and a realistic review from others on how you're doing. I think too often leaders put on this like myopic set of glasses and think, oh, all is well because I'm in control. And I will say I've seen the most well-intentioned people be horrible leaders because they've lost sight of the fact that leadership is about supporting and upholding, not controlling and managing. And so that's what I hope as the students go off to graduate, I, I have the privilege to teach over 200 students over the course of a year. I, I hope that they go off in the world and as they hit their CEO or C-suite positions, at some point in time, they hear my voice saying, is that the best possible way for you to approach the situation. Are you sitting in a position of servant leadership and are you willing and prepared to be empathetic because you just never know what's happening in other people's lives? That's tremendous. Young, young people have, um, it's an overused and well-used phrase that they are the future, and they, but they really are literally the future. And uh, I love what you're, you're doing, doing with them. Um, in, in our world, AI and uh, <clears throat> bias, whether it's in, it, even unintentional bias written into 
some of our underwriting practices as we become more and more software oriented and, and the, the human interface necessarily cuts back. We spend a lot of time talking uh, about and making sure that we don't accidentally build bias into our systems and processes. And I was inspired, you were talking about students. So there's a student led and now a department at MIT around mm -hmm. this very issue around bias and yeah. accidentally programming that into your system if you're not conscious and aware. That was student led. You're, you're inspiring uh, students to be successful and conscientious leaders. I love that. That's perfect. Um, well, you're right. They are the future. I, I no disrespect to you and me, but we're we're gonna, you know, our our percentage of change is going to be limited just because of the years behind us. But I think for those who have many years ahead, and as the world dramatically change, if nothing else, right, it is giving them the tolerance for change within themselves first, and then change can happen outside of themselves. What advice would you give to those listening? who may be looking to develop their leadership skills? Two things. Find, ideally, if they're alive and you have access, talk to someone that you admire. And to the extent that you can research or interview and understand what that journey is. You know, I know I am not the same person I was last year. Heck, I'm not the same person I was yesterday. And so don't just look at them as a static being of, oh, they're running this or, oh, they've accomplished that, but really get under the hood and understand their journey. Because I think that demystifies the process and hopefully will allow more people to step forward and claim their leadership. I think too often leaders are anointed or appointed and not claimed and owned. So I think that's the first thing. Uh, and the second thing is to really determine what kind of leader you want to be. And I would say, give yourself the greatest patience in the world. Every day, we are all confronted with things from our kids not doing what we're supposed to do to our executive leadership team not doing what we want or feeling supported and really giving yourself the patience to not get it right. One of my own personal challenges that I've grown into is that if I made a mistake, I would hold myself probably in longer accountability than my own board would. And we have to be patient with ourselves. I, I, you know, my mom is 93 years old and she said the pace of change in this world, she has never seen. She thought the leap was going to be from like no entertainment to a TV. Now to know all this stuff can happen on her phone, she's just completely overwhelmed. The pace of change is happening so fast that we have to be patient with ourselves when we make mistakes. We have to be patient with ourselves in terms of how we want to grow and what do we want to be. And, and I think we need to own that. Um, so I think those would be my two pieces of advice. It has been absolutely wonderful to talk with you. Thank you for sharing your story, your expertise, and your experience. Melissa, I really appreciate you being here. And for Lessons in Leadership, we'll talk to you next time.